this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. I want you to think back to the things you feel really committed to, things that you in your gut know to be true. My guess is you learn those from making a mistake because so many of the things we hold so closely are things that we learn the hard way from trial and error. And my next guest, Eric Bandy, did exactly that. He went out and entered into a negotiation to sell his company only to have the deal blow up. But he committed to something at the end of that deal, that he would change the way he ran his company to make it more of a sellable company. He called it architecting for an exit. And here you're going to learn nine different things he did to get his business ready to sell. I won't spoil the punchline. Here to tell you in his entire story is Eric Bandy. Eric Bandy, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you very it's much. great to have you here. Yeah. You're in Minnesota, right? I am. Just outside of Minneapolis. Yeah. Who is the I cyclist? 10,000 lakes. There you go. Who is the cyclist who was from that area? Lake Minnetonka. Oh, see, I would be asking one of my business partners who hardcore oh. cyclists. Um, Greg LeMond, is he, I think he's from your neck of the woods. Is he a famous name that you've heard before? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So Everybody. I think he's from... I think he's from that area where you are. It was good to know you and good to meet you. Tell me a little bit about this company, Augusto. What did you guys do? Yeah. So, you know, um, like many of your listeners, we had um, uh, lots of great growth opportunity over the years and our business model grew and and, uh, evolved over time um, over the last two decades or 20 years. Um, But at the time of our transaction, Augusto was a, uh, what I'd call a cloud consultancy. Um, so we helped organizations specifically around Google Cloud, which is Google's commercial products uh, and services. And so we provided services, we provided resale, and we helped uh, Fortune 500 companies that were trying to look to take advantage of that technology within their environment, uh, uh, you know, get stood up, starting to use the services. Um, we did development work. So we were one part application development. Uh, we were one part DevOps and uh, infrastructure. And then we actually helped clients around the collaboration space called G Suite. 
Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. You joined in 2007. You didn't start the company. How did you come to run it? Yeah, so uh, like I said, the company started in about 2000. Um, the uh, uh, one of the founders had actually moved on and ha- had was running a different startup, um, and Augusta was a regional managed services player, kind of uh, uh, doing like breakfast computer work, server management, etc. I came on board in 2007 um, and was, uh, I knew the founders, uh, the great cultural fit. um, And I was looking for a place to just kind of call home for a little while while this whole cloud uh, thing was emerging in 2007. It was still very, very early days for the cloud. Um, And I was back in 2007, you guys are fixing people's computers when a network has a virus, you'd kind of swoop in and and get rid of the virus, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and so did, they, did you buy the company? Did you become a shareholder or, or were you, as they say, a kind of a managed gun, hired gun brought in as president? Yeah, I was, uh, actually I didn't even start off as president. I uh, kind of came into the role pretty quick because the business, you know, the, and this is part of that whole evolution uh, that many entrepreneurs face. Um, the managed services space was pretty uh, uh, saturated. A um, lot of players, really hard to scale. Um, capital intensive, slow growth, and the ROI or the, 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 the kind of um, evaluations were solid, but only solid if you hit a certain threshold. And to get to that threshold was pretty substantial. Um, and I came in with a relationship with Google Cloud that had just started. I mean, Google had really allocated their first 50 headcount to even start a commercial division in 2007. Um, so I came in with a picture of like, how about we take this platform, Augusto, we pivot it and start to go after uh, the cloud in a more significant way. Um, and because of that, because of the vision and the strategy, uh, it just made sense that I took over running the company um, and really see the strategy forward. And it really was the, the beginning stages of the evolution of our business model from a managed, pure managed services to managed services with uh, project services and tech services on top of that. And eventually it didn't make sense with the revenue growth we were seeing in the cloud services space to continue to maintain on-premise managed services. So uh, in 2014, uh, I divested of that portion of our business so we could singularly focus on you know, what we were doing in and around you know, Fortune 500 companies taking advantage of Google Cloud. You mentioned the valuation for companies when you joined there, you know, was relatively modest for small businesses. And then, but if it, if it grew to a certain size, it, it became more attractive. What sort of valuation multiples would you, were you seeing for very small companies? And then what was sort of the, uh, the ideal, what was, what were you seeing for much larger companies in the way of valuation multiples? Yeah. So, uh, back then, um, MSPs or managed service uh, providers that are service companies that had recurring revenue streams, you know, with a, a healthy percentage of their revenue tied to ongoing contractualized service revenue. Um, you could see three to four, maybe five times, really times revenue. Generally, though, about three to four was, was pretty great. Um, but you needed to be north of 10 million in recurring revenue. Uh, to get that. Um, it was uh, it was really hard when we started as, you know, a few million in, in recurring revenue to figure out how to capitalize the business to experience that kind of growth in a time horizon that made sense. Um, 
So at our size, the valuations were all over the place. When you're dealing with smaller companies, you know, there's a lot more, I just, I guess, wiggle room on, on both sides, low end and high side. And when I went actually to divest of the managed services uh, uh, division, I was seeing a, a massive range in valuations because you're talking about, you know, uh, basically a owner operator selling to another owner operator. Um, you're not, you're not typically working in the a few million dollars types transactions. You're not typically talking about traditional private equity or bankers or stuff like that. They just, those are too small for them to bring the attorneys and the accountants and the auditors into the mix. So they, they just, there's just not enough money involved. So it's, it's basically one owner operator selling to another owner operator and thus the valuations kind of go out the window to an extent. And it t- totally just depends on the strategic fit of what that, uh, a deal could look like. To the entity we ended up selling the division to um, was looking for creating a beachhead in the Minneapolis market. And so for them, it was a strategic play because they were looking for growth. And that, like I said, that market was saturated. And so the only way that a lot of organizations were continuing to see positive growth was through, you know, or inorganic uh, and acquisitions. Um, so that's where this fit. Um, it was a great fit for our employees because, you know, they got to be a part of a bigger organization and see good growth. It was a great fit for them because they created this beachhead in Minneapolis. Um, but it definitely made it a lot harder when I was trying to figure out what's this, what's this practice worth? You know, yeah. worth three times revenue? Is it worth one times revenue? Is it and at the time you were selling that division, it was a couple million in revenue-ish? Yeah, yeah. And, and so what did you come up with? What, like, what did you find it to be worth? So this is one of those, you know, funny stories. I'm sure many of your listeners as entrepreneurs, you just, there's a serendipitous moment where I had an offer on the table and I went to seek uh, advice from a a gentleman who I've known for a long time, who's a very seasoned business professional and has done M&A transactions. I was sitting down, grabbing a beer saying, I got to run this deal past you because I just don't feel like this is the, the right kind of valuation, but I can't get comparables you know, in our size and our space that helps me at all. And during the course of about a 30 minute conversation, all of a sudden he just says, hold on a moment, walks away from the table, picks up, you know, with his phone, comes back and says, I have a different buyer for you. <laughs> um, because he had just two weeks prior been asked to rep this company that ended up buying the business to create a beachhead in Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, back to your question, you know, we, I really struggled with this. Um, you know, one of the things I learned in the most recent, we haven't got to the story with the most recent transaction with Augusto, um, but what I learned there is really spending a lot more time identifying kind of the, the exit thesis, like what is necessary in the, in the organization, the structure, the architecture, the how do you engineer business to actually be sold? Um, in 2014, I knew I had, a, I had a good company. I had good people, good engineers, good contracts, good clients. Um, but I hadn't really spent the time to understand exactly what the, those KPRs, KPIs needed to be in order for it to yield a premium valuation. So when I actually moved to sell, I really struggled. And I didn't know how to benchmark a good deal from a bad deal. Um, Ultimately, you know, deals are, you know, in the, in the eyes of the buyer and the seller. And we were very happy with how that came together and, and how it provided uh, uh, additional capital into Augusto to continue to fuel our growth around our, our cloud consultancy practice. Um, 
it was great for the buyer. The buyer articulated it really served their needs. So I think it was ultimately in the end a, really a, a, a great deal. But I can't answer the question about how did I solve it, whether it was the right deal or not from a valuation standpoint. I still don't know. Maybe they got a deal. Maybe we got a deal. What, what was the difference between the low offer and the high offer on a percentage basis? Are we talking like you, you give us a sense. Is, are there huge ranges at that lower end? So it was um, the, the, the ranges were actually fairly close, probably about 30% difference, okay. but it was the structure of the deal, which is also a big part of building towards sell, understanding what you're, um, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so the How one you that I'm sitting on um, yeah. had, you know, basically 25% of the value of the deal up front and the rest over a four year earnout. And I was struggling because part of my goal was to use this as a recapitalization of the business. Um, Meaning money to fund the cloud stuff. Exactly. To, yeah. to fuel where I was seeing explosive growth to really transform Augusto's business um, to, from a regional player to a, a national, certainly very national North America focus with some international practice and go up market with customers and you know increase valuation. Um, and this other deal that came out wasn't quite as rich. It was about 30, a little less than 30% from the high end, but it was all cash up front. Hmm. And so, you know, we got about one times revenue when push came to shove, um, which was a little light based on what I said about, you know, what MSP valuations were. But again, those are in the only comparables I could find were bigger entities and, you know, it's just, there's just business, the business models, there's just evolutions in revenue size. And 10 million was in a really important threshold to start moving into that, what they call standard valuation range. Um, and we just were a long ways from that. So I still feel like we got actually a, a, a pretty solid deal. The guy you were having, the guy you were having the beer with was, had you engaged him? Was he a paid consultant on your behalf or was he just a buddy giving advice? Just a buddy giving me advice. Uh, advice. Okay. And how did you stick handle it? Because clearly he had been hired by that company to find a business like yours. So he was definitely, if you will, compromised to some extent because he was advocating for his, <laughs> his buyer. How did you it stick handle the relationship? Yeah. Yeah. It went from uh, Hey, let's grab a beer. I need some advice to, Oh, we're negotiating now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, um, what was that like? Uh, you know, that was, that was, uh, uh, it was, so, so he, I've known him for a long time and he's a, he's a very fair, reasonable resource. He had just, uh, talked with them about his engagement with them to help on the buy side. Um, so he hadn't fully structured and hadn't really moved into the space to handle, like he, he wasn't up to speed on what they needed to buy. So it, it just was, it's just the timing of that worked out in such a way that we were able to have a pretty open conversation. Um, and if I've done, if I've learned anything throughout these transactions, you know, the more open and transparent, and, and, and this is just the, the way I've played out the last couple, um, the better off it was because, you know, every, every organization, we had wrinkles and warts. Um, you know, we had some really great clients, and, but we had some concentration issues in our MMR, our, our monthly What's recurring MMR? revenue. Okay. monthly recurring revenue stream. So yeah. we, had, we had some concentration issues with some of our clients. Um, 
you know, I, I just chose to be upfront about that and say, here's where we're strong and here's where we have some struggles and some challenges. Um, and on the converse side, they, they chose to take a very uh, uh, kind of similar approach of just open negotiation, communication. So we were able to talk about the issues, what we're trying to accomplish, what they're trying to accomplish and come up with a fair price um, and, and structure. Um, and so it started at that beer. When, when he came back to the table, you know, we had already started talking about the business. And so I had already tipped my hand on a few of those things, but it was really important that I felt just to continue that, that kind of theme throughout the entire negotiation. And it made the whole thing go much, much smoother. So did you take that, what, so that money, um, you wanted to, in your own words, recapitalize the business, meaning to inject some money to, to be able to take this, the, the business forward in this Google cloud area. So the, the founders, the shareholders didn't take money off the table at that point. They, they were willing to roll it all Very into the school cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. By that so point, by that yeah. point, I was um, not just a hired gun anymore. I was uh, uh, on a shareholder plan. Um, so to be able to come in and start being a part of the, a part of the group that subsequently um, in, in the last few years, you know, materialized in a way so that there was a small um, shareholder group of us to, you know, really reap the benefit of a transaction, which we just did this earlier this year. Got it. Okay. So where does it go from there? You've got the cash, you know, the cloud is this Google cloud thing is important. I still, by the way, like just as an aside, I think this, the word cloud, it just seems, it seems so overused there. Like I remember the IBM was supposed to be the cloud and then like Salesforce was like, you don't need software anymore. Now it's all in the cloud. And now Google's clouds, like you got to bear with me. I, the whole thing just seems like everybody's using the same term, but anyway, so keep going. What's so the Google cloud, what, what was the opportunity that you saw? Yeah. So um, this was one of those few moments where as an entrepreneur, um, you know, I saw a market demand increasing um, faster than, uh, the market was able to keep up, but it had to be capitalized. It, t- it took investment. I needed to hire salespeople. I needed to hire a marketing team. I needed to hire engineers. And I needed all of that to be hired before the revenue would catch up. Um, you know, it wasn't a situation where I could onesie twosie. I could hire somebody, get them productive, and then based on their productivity, turn around and hire another person and another person. The market was moving very rapidly um, from 2015 to 18, 19, there was, you know, Amazon, which is the big 800 pound gorilla in the public uh, commercial cloud space. So AWS offering, offering right? AWS. Yep. Yeah. Um, with 50 ish percent market share and Microsoft with Satya coming on board, really substantially made investments there. Google re-architected their leadership team and started making for, so there was like a massive players who are bringing a lot, you know, tremendous capital to market to expand their market share and growth. And that just paved the way for uh, companies like Augusto to really see aggressive growth opportunity, but that required capital. Um, so uh, we took the capital from the, um, the divestiture and poured it right into the business. The, the, the owners took a little bit uh, of money, but very, very little. And for the most part, it all went into sales and marketing initially 
followed then by engineering. Um, and that allowed us to begin um, a growth trajectory. Um, you know, 2016, we had one of the first, we weren't quite ready to look at selling, but we had somebody come sniffing around because the market was hot. There was more demand than there was capacity to serve the demand. Um, and so we had a big um, uh, global systems integrator, you know, you know the, the very large, I don't want to name names, but you know, large consultancies that have hundreds of thousands of employees globally. They all needed uh, uh, competencies in each of the, the public cloud platforms. And so they, were, they came sniffing around. And this was, it was really the first time we thought about maybe, maybe we should sell Augusto, or, you know, instead of growing it. Um, Ballpark, how much, like, I know we have to be careful about our revenue, but just kind of how, at that point, 2016, how, how many employees did you have? Or what was the, can you give me some sense of sort of how big you'd grown by that point? Uh, yeah, when we divested the managed services practice, that the entire team that was with that went with that transaction. Um, that team had been doing some of our cloud consultancy engineering work. So we were, you know, at, in 2014, 25 people, and then 15 people went. And so I went back to a really small team of only 10, 10 people, um, mm -hmm. and uh, we're starting to grow. So by 16, I, you know, I don't remember the number of employees at that point. We were probably back up to about 25, if I had to guess, maybe 25 or 30. Got um, it. And, and, and the business you're doing, it, it, as you move to the Google Cloud, you're, you're, as I understand it, helping large enterprise organizations. Yeah. Uh, put their operations, services, products online in, in, in the cloud. Is that basically what you were yeah. doing? Yeah. So, so one question is if you're a U.S. bank or you're 3M or you're one of the other large enterprise organizations based in the Twin Cities, why would you just pick up the phone and call Google itself and say, send me like some smart people. I want to put my online banking on, on, uh, on the next, on, on Google cloud or whatever. Like, why would you just call Google yourself if you're that big? Yeah. Well, and that was part of my uh, secret sauce with the go-to-market, which is that's exactly what they all did. They all called Microsoft, AWS and Google and all of them, um, don't have the engineering bench to be able to handle every single customer. So they turn around to their top partners and they say, hey, uh, Augusto, why don't you come with us to, you know, U.S. Bank or uh, whomever, and let's sit down with together and see what we can do for this client. And so it was part of my strategy for how to, like, revamp our go-to-market in such a way that would pay for uh, expanded growth. One, Google pulled me up market. So we started in the, when we were an MSP or managed service provider, we started really in the kind of uh, mid-sized, and really even the small SMB side of SMB. Our typical customer was 25 employees to maybe 100 employees. It was pretty common at that point. Uh, when we started doing the cloud consultancy, we started in that space because that's what we were already marketing to. But pretty quickly, we went from, we went to like more like, a hundred to a thousand employee space. And we spent uh, a fair amount of time in that, what I'd call that mid markets, the M side of SMB. Um, but it is, was over time, especially when we start divested at MSP and really pouring our capital into our growth and building up engineers and stuff like that, that our competency in combination with the market dynamic 
uh, allowed us to continue to grow even further. So we were actually now starting to, you know, provide services to Fortune 500, Fortune 100. Um, and part of that was that we were very tightly aligned with Google and they provided that credibility. I mean, most of your listeners have never heard of Augusto. Um, I'd be actually surprised if, if anybody has. We were, you know, a small Midwest-based company and here I am walking into you know, Fortune 100 companies right alongside Google, but because I was right alongside Google, um, their brand gave me credibility. And so we were able to take down and really then grow. So by the time we did our transaction, um, you know, we had 360 customers, uh, a solid 80 of them were in the Fortune 500 space. Um, some very big recognizable logos um, and we were doing meaningful work for them. And to what extent did you worry that you were tying your horse too closely to Google? Um, was there, were there discussions among the ownership group to say, man, what if Google exits the cloud or AWS takes over or, you know, like were, were, were those conversations you guys had? So one of the lessons I learned, and, you know, frankly, this was an, this is an interesting one because this was a, this was a debated topic a lot uh, amongst, especially one, one of the uh, uh, shareholders and I, he and I would like go back and forth on this a lot. When, when we exited the MSP business um, and then in 2016, when this large global systems integrator started sniffing around and we're like, well, maybe Augusto really has some value that we could look at an exit, a meaningful exit for us in the next few years. I then started to really work on trying to think about how do we architect this business so that it is attractive. The GSI came out hot and heavy. We're going to buy you. We're really interested. We're going to put a premium valuation. And then it just kind of imploded and fell apart. Now they went through, uh, there was nothing actually, it had nothing to do with us or our business or our, who we were, our customers, our revenues, et cetera. It had everything to do with, they had this change in leadership, change in direction, what they were going to do, go to market. But what it did for me personally is I said, I got to be much, much more thoughtful about how I'm architecting this business for a premium valuation and for an exit. So to your question, that was a strategic decision because I believed that having a singularly focused uh, company, as opposed to more agnostic, we support Microsoft, we work with AWS, we work with Google, we work with even IBM or others. Mm -hmm. um, I purposefully thought we would have a higher premium and be more attractive to the right buyer if we were singularly focused. That Somebody that went out and said, we need to we need to have a Google cloud practice. We'll either go build it or buy it. It's, a, it's an equation that every business is doing out there. And when they decide it's faster and more valuable for us to buy it because you know, they have customer demand or what have you in our case. So if I had these other practice areas, my bet was that'd be a distraction and it could actually hurt my uh, valuation. Um, what I learned was it was more nuanced than, than that. I kind of took a, that, like, that, I kind of really owned that, that statement I just gave. But once I started actually spending a lot more time, private equity didn't care. It was the architecture to have a strong valuation for private equity was all about EBITDA. It was about, you know, yes, it was kind of the magic 40 you, you, you likely have heard, which is, you know, growth rate, 
plus then your, your EBITDA percentage. And if that's a 40% number, you're solid. If it's less, you know, you can have like strong, like our, our EBITDA was lower because we were, I was building this business for uh, growth and I was funneling everything back into the business. So as soon as I could hire somebody, I'd hire somebody and, you know, then they got going, I'd hire another person. So our EBITDA numbers weren't terrible, but they weren't, they weren't great. Um, and, but our growth numbers were, you know, 30-ish, 33, 34% year-over-year growth and for like five years straight. So private equity didn't care about, there was no extra premium because we were Google only. The strategics, they cared because, you know, when was, they wanted to be able to have a tuck-in that was very Google-focused. Um, and especially last year when I felt like we were getting to a size and valuation where we might be, it might be a good time for us to be looking at doing a deal. Um, you know, I started looking and there wasn't a lot of comparables, but one of my competitors did exit to a strategic in December of, of 2019. Um, and that helped really put a, a watermark of what are these businesses worth? And they were probably the closest thing to a benchmark against Augusta that what I What did they sell for? I don't know. It was a private transaction. Um, um, were you but, not able to, so how is it helpful that if you didn't know what the number was? Well, I, I did dig around a little bit. So I think I had a sense. Um, what was your sense in terms of what you, what you thought that they got in terms so, of multiple of revenue or whatever? So there was multiple of EBITDA. Okay. Um, and they got, I think 13 or 14 times EBITDA. Got it. Which is really so that strong. gave you a benchmark of what a strategic was willing to pay for yeah. Augusto what you yeah. thought roughly ballpark got yeah. it. But your EBITDA in your own admission wasn't a priority. It was more top line revenue growth. Right. Right. Which became a problem once, um, you know, Millpoint Capital um, and Pythian. So in September of last year, uh, Millpoint Capital acquired Pythian, which is a, a services a company out of Canada that um, is a Google partner, but didn't have the resale component. Um, and in, uh, late November, December timeframe, um, they expressed interest in, in Augusto and combining, being able to combine Augusto with Pythian um, to create, you know, a, a much bigger player with, you know, hundreds of employees, uh, very deep service capabilities, a very deep engineering bench. And then the resale piece um, that we brought to the table, which is, you know, closely connected with Google Cloud and being able to resell those products. Um, and it was a really compelling story, but it did present a, a bit of a challenge when, you know, because private equity typically looks at, okay, what's your EBITDA? Let's, let's give you, you know, a multiple of EBITDA. And that just wasn't going to cut it for us, you know, because we had tooled, I had tooled the business to, to, to fuel growth and I had wanted to get bigger before actually, in fact, we had hired a um, investment banker um, to, to really kind of help through the transaction and we had suspended that, that relationship in 19 because we'd gone to market. I got some term sheets into 18 into yeah, early part of 19. And it just, I just didn't feel like the valuation was where it needed to be. I hadn't quite dialed in those, those KPIs, those metrics in the business to really be the kind of thing where I felt like I can build this a little bit further. I can continue to, you know, hit growth. And at any point in time, I could have flipped it and focused on EBITDA. Um, but 
I still felt there was more room to grow in the market as opposed to then just pull back on growth and just maximize EBITDA. But that would have been in front of us uh, probably 2020, 2021 for an exit had this private equity group and this and, and Pythian not come into the fold. Um, and so when you evaluated those offers in 18 and 19, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, they just weren't really valuing the business the way you thought it should be. What did you think they should value the, how did you think they should value the business? Yeah, that's, that's always a dilemma. And I've talked to a number of uh, entrepreneurial friends that have sold businesses and, um, certainly there's some clear, um, market guidelines, multiples of EBITDA, depending on the industry you're in, maybe a multiple of revenue. If you're in a subscription based business, a SaaS business, there's multiple of like, uh, of ARR, annuity based revenue. There's like every industry has its two, three, four things that are all used to benchmark. But once you actually get into looking at a specific business, it gets a lot more complicated because no business just fits every single checkbox. It's like, well, mm-hmm. we're really good here, but we're struggling here. And this is why we're struggling. And, and this is where it comes back to in a similar way to the transaction in 2014, trying to determine what are we trying to accomplish? What is the buyer trying to accomplish and, and whether or not there's uh, a gap that's achieved, uh, you can overcome that gap or not. In the case of us for the, the uh, term sheets in 18 into 19, um, they just, they, they were really early stage uh, uh, private equity groups that believed Google Cloud was going to grow, but they, I don't believe they quite had the confidence of what that was going to look like. So I believe that factored into their valuations. So their offers were a little light, a little lower. There wasn't the, the, there wasn't comparables in the market or there had not been a transaction in my space. So no one knew, like, what are the, like, I don't know, somebody's got to be the first. Um, and it just falls back to that whole, like, well, simply the, my, my business partners and I, we just, we wanted a bigger payday. We felt the company was worth more. And maybe at the time, maybe it just flat, flat out wasn't. Maybe we just, the, the PEs that were interested just weren't the right PEs. I don't know exactly what it was, but it, it eventually just worked its way down to this isn't a good enough deal for what we feel that this is worth. And so we'd rather continue to bet on ourselves and grow until we're presented with the right opportunity. And so it sounds like, because of your focus on top line revenue at sometimes at the expense of prop bottom line profit, yeah. you were hoping for a multiple of revenue, like the valuation to be, to be pegged to a multiple of revenue. Yeah. And if I'm reading between the lines, the, the offers in 2018 and 19 were some multiple of EBITDA yep. and therefore the, the actual number was less than was, you know, appetizing for the ownership group. Right. No, I think well, well stated. Right. And then what was your reaction to learn that your, your friends uh, or, or your acquaintance, uh, you, you know, the competitor, the bench, the company you were benchmarking against also sold at a multiple of EBITDA. Like I would imagine that event, like that might've been a bit destabilizing for you because here you are getting offers of multiples of EBITDA and then 
your buddy <laughs> sells for multiple, you've been on there, you're like, well, maybe, maybe I've been chasing the wrong goal all these years. Did, yeah. did that come to, to mind at all? Or? Um, well, that was, you know, something that we looked at pretty regularly. Uh, a couple times a year, looked at, you know, the, the business, you know, we had to go through evaluation process for ourselves uh, once a year, just as, as shareholders and looked at, like, looked at ourselves hard in the mirror. Like how, are, what do we expect this thing to be worth and are we worth that or not? And what do we need to do on the business to architect for that? And this is something that I think, you know, I, you know, had to learn in this last go around, which is really truly architecting a business for a sale, for an exit. Um, so when I heard about, you know, this competitor um, actually getting a multiple of EBITDA, but a high multiple of EBITDA, it was actually very encouraging because, okay, now there's a benchmark. Now there's some sort of comparable in the space for what these things are actually worth. Um, and at that point, we weren't, as you, as, as, as you just mentioned, we weren't really architected to maximize the valuation on a multiple of EBITDA. But we had had substantial growth. And the private equity that, that came along was really interested. It was the first time we were talking to somebody that was interested in a growth-oriented story, combining the asset that they had just acquired with Augusto to build a healthy, strong business, um, as opposed to a private equity that's just like, okay, well, there's some value here. I can probably buy it, maybe squeeze a little bit of cost out and you know, flip it in a couple of years just on a multiple on the business itself. Um, this private equity group was far, far more strategic. In fact, it was one of the one of the first times I talked to somebody that looked at it more like a venture capital would, but they're from more of the private equity point of view. Um, so it was all about growth and return and, and the strategic nature of the deal. And that factored into why we were able to get the deal done that we were able to get done. Uh, because they were able to see, yes, our EBITDA way is where it was, um, but they also were able to get their head wrapped around EBITDA, what EBITDA could be if we squeeze the business. So we're growth oriented, but I can go backwards and show a picture of what the business would have looked like if I had squeezed out and not invested from a, a you know, the profit back in and what that did would you, have factored. Did you do that model, Eric? Did you yeah. actually create that and yeah. show them? And yeah. what, what, was, what was their reaction to that model? They'd already done some of it themselves, <laughs> mm. you know, um, they're, they're a, a pretty savvy group. Um, they had, you know, done a lot of their own analysis. They were really dialed into the market. They were really dialed into the value of the businesses. And so for them, it wasn't anything of surprise. They'd already kind of looked around and had looked at a few different entities and were pretty comfortable about what these businesses were actually worth. And so by doing that model, all I really did was validate for ourselves that we're getting a very reasonable, a really good offer. And so what did you strip out to model what the business would have looked like had you not had your foot on the gas all the time and, and trying to grow basically at all costs? What were you able to pull out in the way of expenses to juice up the EBITDA number? Like what sorts yeah. of things did you pull out? Yeah, well, so there's, uh, you know, marketing expenses. So that's, that's an easy one of looking at, uh, you know, that cost center and saying, well, what's a benchmark for an, a steady state company versus a growth oriented company and then right size that percentage and back that cost out. 
um, was able to do um, obviously some professional fees, you know, that we were leveraging to, to help. Recruiting fees, I would imagine too. Like recruiting fees. Um, we were carrying an extra bench, meaning uh, engineers that because in, when you, growth oriented, you end up having to, um, I have to have people that can do the work before I can ever sell the work. Um, mm-hmm. And if I was more steady state, I would have taken a, a different posture in how I would have staffed up. Uh, and so factor in what that model would have been and then, you know, right size that. So those are the big kind of cost buckets that I took out um, to then get a picture of what EBITDA could have been, um, you know, if we had been more steady state oriented. Because on this show, we've talked a lot about the, the process of doing uh, like an adjusted EBITDA, adjusted income statement, right? But this actually sounds different. This sounds like you, I'm sure you did an adjusted EBITDA, but you also kind of retroactively went back and, and did a, a model. And that sounds like, a, like actually a different thing that I've never heard anybody do before. Yeah, well, it was really helpful for us to see because um, our business and the business model is such we could have been tooled differently. We could have played it differently, I should have said. We're much, much more conservative instead of very growth-oriented, basically bottom-line-oriented as opposed to top-line-oriented. Because um, you can't serve two masters. So we served the, the top-line master to, to push that growth up. And it was really helpful for us to be able to go back and play that model out and say, well, if we'd gone the different direction, would we have been better off or worse off? Because mm-hmm. we could not, we could have not done this deal. I had capitalized the business. Um, we had just secured a, a pretty sizable uh, note in early 2019. Um, had plenty of capital, so I didn't have to do a deal. When you say a note, do you mean you had a you had an operating line of credit that you yeah. could draw down against? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we had an operating with very. Uh, favorable terms, solid operating line of credit. And it just afforded us an ability to roll the business forward a few years of continued growth for our future transactions on the road. So I was not, like I said, we suspended our relationship with our banker because it was going to grow a little bit further. And so for us, being able to go backwards and do this model allowed me to look at and say, well, we arguably would have done this model a year or two from now. Let's just take that same perspective and roll backwards and see what would what, what are what, where would we be today if we had taken that two years in reverse out, out of interest the the um the line of credit that you had was that secure did you have to sign a personal guarantee for that no no i mean everybody starts there we had enough assets um part of part of part of what i've really fought for over the last number of years especially in the technology services space banks historically don't understand our types of assets. They understand, you know, a piece of equipment, they understand a piece of property, um, you know, how they can capitalize something. They get those, those types of assets. Um, long-term contracts to supply service to, they, that's just like almost vaporware to them. They just can't get their head wrapped around it, but it is real legit asset. Um, and it, 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 I've been successful over the last number of years of finding banks and bankers that are willing to spend the time for me to educate them on how it truly is an asset that is fundable and thus then not having to go down the path of, uh, you know, personal guarantees. Obviously, like most entrepreneurs, most of your listeners, at some point in your career, your journey, you have to do it. It's just mm-hmm. unavoidable. Um, but you get to a certain size and scale and 
you start having more revenues and weight and be able to kind of push on that. Um, but even at our size, it still wasn't a slam dunk. Um, you know, we still had to do a lot. I had to do a lot of work with the banks to get them comfortable with who are we. Um, many pitches. Um, it almost felt like we were selling the business. And even though we were just raising a line of credit. <laughs> Isn't that wild? What else did you do? You mentioned this term, and I love it, architecting the business for an exit. And that's, I mean, that's really in essence what all of our listeners are in one way, shape or form trying to do is, yeah. is architect for an exit. So what other tactical things did you do to architect for an exit? Yeah. So um, I kind of break it down into a few different areas. There's the, the financial piece. Um, there's the kind of the, the intangible uh, piece. You know, starting off, we had to make some assumptions about what would somebody, why would somebody buy and pay a premium? Like, what are the things they care about? And then from there, work backwards. So um, our business, very cash oriented. That's that's how we were able to fuel the top line. So we had, uh, you know, part of that architecture was building a very strong cash model. So we managed our cash down to the week um, and projected out for, um, at least a full year and actually often two years. And so it gave us, and, and, and because we started doing that years ago, um, our CFO, we built a, um, a level of confidence in what our cash projections would look like. And the further obviously you got out on the calendar, the, the softer that becomes, but certainly for the next quarter, arguably couple quarters, it was pretty tight because we had all this history and we had been tracking it for such a long time. So when we got into negotiations and we were pushing for higher valuation, you know, there were certain questions about, well, yeah, but if we had a level of confidence about what that revenue really, when we would see the dollars coming in, we're like, aha, we've got a very tight model and can go backwards and show you the, the confidence with which we can operate off of and why this is a, a cash strong business. And that built the confidence of the buyers to say, okay, okay, that's pretty tight. So that was one uh, tactical thing. Let me just did. push a little bit further there because help, help me understand you're getting acquired by some giant private equity group with all the money in the world. Why do they care about your cash flow statement? Why wouldn't they just I mean, they can probably bankroll for you for years without, like, why would they care? Yeah, well, certainly they, they've, the, the, the fund that they use, there's tons of capital in that fund. Um, but nonetheless, if they don't have to push that capital to be used, all the better. They, uh, uh, and for, for us, it was less about, actually, let me rephrase that. It wasn't so much that they cared about our ability to, um, to fund the business through cash flow, they cared our ability to control the business and uh, how tight of financial controls did we have on the business as a gauge for how, like, what's the health of the business? You know, the, the private equity group, you know, they're taking a leap of faith. They, they're they're going to do as much due diligence as they possibly can. And they're going to have, we had audited financials, so our, our financials were in solid shape. Um, uh, we had, you know, that was part of one of the tactical things that we did. It was a, it was an expensive decision that we started many years ago, but it was the right decision to, to hire an, a, you know, a reputable firm to go through and do audited financials for the last number of years. Um, because it just made, it just put us in a, in a position where it could stand up to all sorts of scrutiny and there was, there was no challenge, but 
the, the private equity group used it more so as a litmus for how tightly were we managing the business? How much control did we have? How much, you know, were we susceptible to swings where, you know, you, you'd have some clients not pay? Um, you know, the financials tell a pretty good story about the health of the business when you get into it. Like if you have a bunch of customers that aren't paying, well, how closely are you managing those customers? Why are they not paying? You know, do you have a customer service relationship issue? Do you have a sales issue? What's the net new versus the steady state of your current base? I mean, those are all things you can start to see in the financials and then work backwards out of the financials to determine what's going on here that could have resulted in the financials. So for them, the cash model was a way for them to get comfortable about our management of the business. Okay, that's helpful. What else did you do to architect the business to, to yeah. exit? Um, so that was a big one. The other financials I just mentioned, um, mm -hmm. we, um, uh, having had spent a lot of years on the legal side, 2016, when that GSI, that Global Systems Integrator, was interested in acquiring us, our like contracts, our data room, our contract management, even some of the clauses in our contracts around assignability, it was pretty loosey goosey. What do you mean by assignability, and why is it, what it why why would assignability matter in the context of a of an acquisition? So. For our business, you know, we sign a contract with a client and it's to exchange, you know, service for fees. Um, a lot of customers will push back on assignability because they don't want you to be able to just go sell that at a later point without their input. But if Eric, you Eric just for most people, I don't think will know what you mean by assignability. So just to, could you define that? Yeah, yeah. So in a, uh, it's a pretty common contract clause where if I get a customer to, to sign a contract with me, I've got the ability to assign that contract to someone else. Uh, in this particular case, if I'm gonna be sold, you know, I need to be able to sign that contract to the buyer because that buyer is now taking over the asset and owning it. Um, uh, a lot of times when you're just going fast and you're trying to be very sales oriented with contracts and closing business, Customers will push back on that, and it's a very easy one to say, okay, we'll say that you can, customer, you have, like, uh, notice rights, or you even have approval rights. Mm -hmm. So, meaning a customer can say they get the ability to approve that that contract is now assigned. That might not seem like a big deal until the day you're selling. And when you go to sell and you look, start looking at your contracts and that assignability, you may have a smooth process or you may have a very complicated process of chasing down customers and trying to get them to give you a waiver to say, yes, I can sell my business. And part of selling my business is assigning these contracts to the new buyer. Did you have to uh, chase some down? So in 2016, um, when we first were flirting with this GSI, it dawned on me how kind of loose our contracts were. And that is not something you can change overnight. Um, you know, you have to wait for contracts to come up for renewal. Um, so at that point, I started fairly meticulously going through our contracts, especially our bigger ones, and making sure we had strong assignability. Once we actually did the transaction earlier this year, there were a few that we had to get approvals on. Um, you know, big, big Fortune 100, they have, they're very difficult to negotiate with. Um, and so there was a handful, but there was like 10 out of our 360 accounts. The rest were all pretty clean and smooth. 
Did you get any pushback on the 10 when you went back for signability rights? No, I mean, the, the thing we had struggled with, and, and we haven't talked about this yet, is the fact that we did this transaction right in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we closed uh, April 1st. Um, the majority of, in talking to our investment banker, our, our legal counsel, the, the, the buyer's legal counsel and, and, and their bankers and the private equity group, like 80 to 90% of all deals went pens up, meaning they just stopped any forward progress at that point in time because, you know, no one knew what was going to happen. No one was going to happen with the economy. Um, and we had somebody last minute, like two, three weeks from close, come out of the woodwork. They had talked to us early. They went dark, a private equity group. They went dark. They came back and they said, we, we're sorry, we're back. We really love the business. We would love to give you all cash, the entire transaction value, all cash today. But, well, not today, but we'll sign a deal today, but we're going to have a carve out because we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. So we got to wait and see. Like, it's a, we'd love to do a deal, but we got to wait and see what happens. Sorry, what, what do they mean by a carve out? I've never heard that. I don't know what you mean by that. Um, well, I, I'm sorry, a carve out? I think, I think you said like, we're going to do the deal, like a private equity company swoops in and says, okay, we're going to give you hundred percent cash. You're like, okay, I'll take that for the full valuation. But they weren't willing to consummate the deal because of the pandemic. What, what, what was yeah, it? They, they wanted to, they wanted to wait until they understood what the pandemic was going okay. to be to their fund. Um, so like, we'll circle back in a couple of months. Just don't do the current deal in front of you. We're like, uh, no, we are under, we're, <laughs> you know, in an exclusivity, we're not interested in doing this. And, we just told them to, to go away, but it was um, it was a uh, uh, it was an example of the kinds of things and the kind of just weirdness that the pandemic caused um, in and around. And so the fact that we were able to move forward with a transaction, I think, actually spoke volumes about the value both on the buyer and the seller side that we were committed to make this thing happen despite all of this other extra noise. Anyways. The reason you asked about this was, did I have any challenges of securing the assignability mm -hmm. of those 10 I mentioned? Um, and I had no challenges. In fact, um, you know, one of the things that was, because I, I personally called all these clients and talked with them and did the negotiations, and all of them were super supportive of the story. The only challenge I ran into was getting a hold of people in the pandemic. Everybody is like, button the hatches down, try to figure out what they're going to do. And, you know, sure. we serve customers across all different industries and some were, everybody was unsure what was going to happen, but some businesses were starting to see an uptick. Some were starting to see a down, you know, uh, like their business starting to shrink a little bit. And so everybody was just really concerned. And so the only challenge I had was trying to get people's attention and time to apply towards. What did you say to those 10, uh, to make the case that this acquisition was in their favor. Yeah. Yeah. In this, you know, we, like I'd mentioned, we had, a, there were two companies coming together and one of the struggles that our clients, our clients loved us, you know, they loved the services we provided. They loved the people that were involved with it, but they we were bigger. Um, they, we wish, they wish that we had more competencies, more ability to uh, support them, service them, et cetera. So for this transaction, this solved that. This gave us mm. a huge bench. We went from a small team to many, many hundreds of employees with deep competencies across core areas that 
you know, our clients were asking for clamoring. They just wish we could get it from us. And now right. it's like, now we're there. So that was the story for the 10, um, which helped really resonate that. Like they were all like, yeah, from an assignability. Um, but that would be one where without good assignability clauses and contracts would really slow or even potentially jeopardize a, a, a deal. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. The fact that I started in 2016, kind of cleaning all that up. And by, by the time we got to a transaction, our data room, our contracts, everything was nice and tidy, reasonably so. Uh, and in, you know, it was, it was, it made it easier to go through the due diligence. Yeah, you know, it's one of the it's one of the ancillary benefits uh, of going through an M and A process that doesn't consummate in a deal is you kind of get a dress rehearsal, right? You, you get to figure out all the questions you're going to have to answer, all the things you have to get done right. Is there anything else that you did to to sort of architect the business for an exit? Yeah, um, you know, there was um, uh, a lot of kind of setting ourselves up organizationally. Um, you know, part of what I needed to do in 2019 was as, as an entrepreneurial led organization, a lot up until really 2019, a lot still flowed to me, right? I was still in really, really involved in a lot of aspects of the business. And even though we were scaling and growing, I, I had hit that threshold where needed to start building on a strong management layer to really help either uh, fuel a transaction because, you know, buyers, it's almost a liability if you have a great delivery team and, you know, again, we're in the services space, a great delivery team and uh, uh, like an entrepreneurial led organization because you have this gap. What happens if, you know, that entrepreneur leaves? What happens if, um, you know, they take the payday and they move on. You don't have the kind of people infrastructure in place to be able to sustain without those couple of key individuals that help grow. So, you know, from 18 and 19, I hired up an entire management team. Uh, now, there were two, two paths forward. One was continuing growth, and I needed that management team to help fuel growth and take Augusta to the next level. But also, that became really crucial in the transaction because the, 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 it wasn't just a couple of individuals that were, you know, super, you know, Superman, superwoman, you know, holding this thing together. It was beyond that. And there was, you know, teams and structure and a little bit more layer of levels of maturity in the entire business operations that then as you begin to, as we began to then integrate with Pythian, um, that structure fit in with their structure uh, and provided greater continuity. Um, you know, in a past life, um, you know, I, I did a small uh, managed services transaction in 2004. Um, and we were of a size where it was myself and my business partner at the time, and then all of our engineers. Um, and my business partner ended up leaving. And then I left about six months later and I just watched you know, we didn't have that kind of structure in place. And I watched employees kind of bounce out and it just wasn't integrated well and there wasn't the right kinds of structure in place. So for Augusto, it was important to build out this management layer to create good structure such that it could survive without a dynamic entrepreneur at the head. What role was the most, imp most important? Like if, as you look at the management team, what role was the critical hire? 
Boy, that's a tough one. And some of them might listen to this podcast. So <laughs> you close your ears if you're on the Augusta management team. Now go. <laughs> um, no, you know, I don't know that that's a really great question. I don't know that I could. Um, Let me uh, ask you a different way. That, but what Let I me ask you a different way. I think, oh, go ahead. I think, everybody, I think everybody listening to this would love an unlimited checkbook to go hire C-level people in sales, marketing, product development, blah, 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 blah. The reality is they don't have that. They, they might be able to make one or two critical hires. Uh, and so what advice would you give someone who, who knows that they can't sell a business that's deeply dependent on them personally? They know they have to build out a management team, but they could maybe afford one or two key people. Yeah. So, I was going to answer it, and I think your, your question helped just kind of further that. Um, the first hire I made was our uh, a VP of technology. Um, one of the things that, and it's not that he's more valuable than the other layers of the ma members of the management team, it's that I'm a sales-oriented uh, leader. You know, so when it comes to the sales and the tech as an entrepreneur, you have to be good at a lot of things, but you also have to look at yourself accurately in the mirror and say, I'm better at the go to, like I'm better at the go to market side sales, marketing, um, and some of the operations and financial management. I'm of all the things I do, I'm not the strongest in technology. So for Augusto, it was really crucial that I found that, that technology leader that would be my counterpart to really spearhead that side of our maturation. Um, I didn't stop there though. I put in practice leads. Um, part, part of what I did is I organized the business around just three discrete practice areas. And then I put a key leader in those practice areas. And that did, would, did two things. One, it would allow me to either continue to fuel growth and where the growth is happening, I can apply that capital as opposed to having more of a traditional like, I have an operations lead and I have all of our billable engineers. It was really more around what are customers engaging us on and I organized around that. And then when we did a transaction, it also fed into an easier time doing integration. Um, so it made us, a, 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 I, I don't know that it added to the valuation, but it certainly didn't detract from the valuation because it made us an easier uh, uh, acquisition target. Would it, came to the acquisition itself, I know you'd had a few, it sounds like a variety of different offers through 2018, 2019. Was, were, were, were you in talks with the, the guys at Millpoint exclusively? Was that the only group at the table or were you fielding other offers until you signed the LOI? So, well, our journey was unique because we went to, you know, 2016, someone came sniffing around. We actually dipped our toe in the water at that time, you know, uh, actually put a deal in place with a banker. Um, we weren't ready. Like a lot of this architecting, engineering work on the business, getting our, sh our, 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 you know, our house in order, you know, from a contracts, from assignability, getting our financials in order, um, some of these core KPIs, um, the team structure and order, all of these things had to get done before we were really uh, uh, an, a target that would yield the kind of valuation that I believed we could. So we then went back to market in um, 17 for a little bit. 
Um, the market at that point, I felt the business was in a better shape, but the market still was early for Google Cloud. There's still a lot of people, financial players on the sidelines, just kind of waiting, watching to see what Google was going to do. So it just wasn't quite the right market time. Um, 18 into 19, we had, uh, we went out and, and ran a process. Uh, it was a clear, tight process. Um, our banker, you know, got, I don't know, 200, uh, you know, sent our deck out, our teaser out to like 200. I don't remember how many number, a lot of people, you know, that whittled down. We did a, a handful of management presentations and we got some term sheets. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it just wasn't still the valuations that we believed we were capable of. And we did spend quite a bit of time like, okay, transaction today versus risk of rolling forward by our own steam and then doing a transaction later. And that is a really important conversation to continue to have, which is like, when is the right time to do a transaction uh, based on your, there's just so many variables involved. Um, so we actually came back off market in uh, early 19, probably March of 2019, and uh, suspended working with our banker because I, I focused internally. I you know, finished running out our management team. Um, we had secured our line of credit for future growth, starting to hire up, um, especially on the sales and marketing side to take us to another level with the intent to go back to the market to do a, a transaction, you know, later 2020 2021 time frame um and it's it just happened to be when um a couple of people i think started to hear that this competitor of mine was being they were in a transaction and that spearheaded a market interest in doing similar deals so we had a, a handful of entities uh, reach out four specifically we did a couple of management presentations. We signed one LOI with Millpoint. And at that point we were in exclusivity um, and um, ran from, you know, really December, uh, middle of December or so through the transaction uh, under exclusivity. People kept reaching out. People kept expressing interest, especially after that, that deal became public. Then there was even more of an uptick um, but there were some attributes to this transaction that really were unique. Um, and it, 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 you know, yes, this one, like a couple weeks before we closed, reached out and tried to throw a Hail Mary of like, we'll just throw a lot of cash at you. And it's like, okay, whatever. It was just noise. Um, we're really happy we did this deal and we, and, and the way with which it came together. But anyways, long answer. Uh, so we, yes, we were in exclusivity from December until the transaction happened. And the four offers that you that you were entertaining, sort of uh, along with the one that actually consummated, I think it, you know it would be helpful to know. I'm assuming all of them had you rolling some equity into the new and like a new entity of some sort. It, uh, proportionally, are you able to talk at all about the range from the four offers, like how much of your equity you were able to? To, to monetize versus roll into a new, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm asking? Yep. yep. Um, and that was actually something in th at this size, this scale with some of these private equities, they were all pretty open to how much. There were ranges, right? Um, you know, they wanted enough skin in the game that, you know, the, the Augusto team is really involved. We're, we're, 
we're showing up, we're excited, we're, we're, we're excited about that second bite at the apple. So it had to be meaningful. Um, but the actual dollar amount or percentage was somewhat open for how much do we want to how much do we want to bet on the second bite at the apple versus how much do we want to actually, you know, so take would 10% been table? meaningful, 20%, 30%, like yeah. give me a, like all of that range, range was, was part of these things, anywhere from 10 to 40% was in range of conversations with uh, some of these entities. And so Eric, I'd be curious because, because I think, a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this will have a number in their head and they're like, I know with conviction that my business is worth X and, and you did. And, and yet that conviction gets uh, shaken, right? When the market tells yeah. them that, Hey, no, it's not worth X and you know, blah, blah, blah. You went through an entire process in, in, I think it was, I guess, at night, 2019, where you started with 200 potential people on the list and you had management president. And even through all of that, when the push came to shove, you still didn't get the number that you thought your business was worth. Right. What gave you the confidence? Like, what were you looking at to say, they're still not getting it? And to give you the confidence, because I think a lot of people having had 200 potential, you know, acquirers, you know, pick over the business, all of whom said, no, it's not worth it. What you think a lot of them would have said, well, maybe you're right. <laughs> what were you looking at that gave you confidence to just, or just bullheaded stubbornness? <laughs> you know, this is, this is where, um, and I've been at this point in a few different businesses where, you know, you sit down with your partners and say, you know, we've got, a valuable organization. We, you know, employ, you know, some great people um, that are able to, you know, provide for their families, etc. And we made the right kinds of decisions along the way where we don't have to be in a position to do a deal. It's one of the probably the best pieces of advice I was ever given is, uh, well, number one, never be in a position where you have to do a deal. Make sure you're all, you, you can always walk away from the deal because then you're able to really look at it uh, not emotion. You're not emotional about it. You're able to say, I, I can do it. I cannot do it. If this doesn't accomplish what my and my business partners want to get done, you know, from a personal standpoint, then I'm, I can just walk forward and I'm not forced. My hand isn't forced to say, you know, we got the XYZ struggles. I can't, the business isn't capitalized. I'm gonna, I, I gotta, I gotta accept what I gotta accept. So that was a really important piece of advice um, you know, that uh, another piece of advice that I got, uh, and, and actually our banker was like super aggressive, just like, you know, Eric, no matter what, never miss your numbers, always beat your numbers. Um, that was also a really good, good, <laughs> good thing that we were able to do throughout the entire process. But, you know, the, the owners and I, we sat down and we just looked at it and said, you know, the deals in two, early 2019, they just didn't get, they didn't accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And so maybe the business was worth that at that point in time. Arguably based on the numbers, it probably was, but it didn't do what we wanted it to do. And I don't know that it fully appreciated the unique nature. I think, you know, one of the things that's hard is in an emerging market, you don't have lots and lots of benchmarks. If you're in a saturated or, or uh, even a, a laggard market, you're able to see what everything's are, 
are paid for. And there's just so many benchmarks to measure. You know what a business is worth. When you're in an emerging space, you don't have that luxury. And so it is a lot more gut and just kind of like, I think I think we're worth more and maybe we're not today because no one showed up willing to write a check for what we were we felt like we were worth but we had capitalized the business and had the luxury of saying well let's just keep going let's were, build this was there up. was there a shareholder who felt differently who was like Eric I think we should take the money man <laughs> um there was definitely discussion um you know it's there was there was a lot of discussion on it, but I, I, we had good alignment amongst amongst us um, about what we wanted to do. We had a, we did, and, and this wasn't really a, t- a big part of the story for today. It is a big part of the story of our journey. In 2015, we'd had we'd started a software product that we spun out called SkyKit, and that was starting to take shape. So where there was challenges amongst you know us leaders was how do we fund Skykit, which is a sister, brother, sister company to Augusto, and we own both. So do we do a deal now because we want to bet more on Skykit? Do we not do a deal because Augusto has more valuation creation opportunity? And then that just means we got other challenges around capitalizing Skykit. And how do you make those bets? Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, real hard conversations, a lot of modeling. A lot, our CFO probably pumped out ridiculous amounts of models trying to like get our arms wrapped around how to value, where's future valuation, what do those metrics look like? Um, and that was, that was something that I think we probably could have improved upon a little bit more, which is having a better kind of ability to model and show progress as opposed to, you know, looking at it purely from just a, a basic number standpoint. And yes, we had some models, but we, we, we kept struggling at like the valuations were different. The businesses were different. One's a SaaS based company, one's a services. How do we apply that capital in the right way? Uh, but eventually we, you know, aligned with it and collectively we all signed off that 2019 wasn't a good enough valuation. And ultimately the, the opportunity in late 2019 and now the one we did was the right valuation. What is it like to have that kind of personal financial event? The um, consummation of the deal in yeah. 2020 for you personally, what, what does that feel like today? Um, you know, someone said early on in my career that one of the best things that can happen to an entrepreneur is um, getting a deal under your belt because I'm, I'm, so I'm still part of the organization. I've, I've assumed a new role um, in as executive vice president in corporate development. Um, and what it's done for me personally is I don't have the same kind of emotional uh, weight around risk that I did prior to the transaction, um, both for uh, you know running the company as well as personally. Um, that risk is just removed. There's still risk but it's the emotionality of it that changes. And so you're able to, I'm able to, you know, approach things more clearly, approach things more uh, uh, factually, you know, that, 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 that reptilian part of the brain isn't like overriding some of the logic that's staring at me based on numbers, opportunities, market potential, et cetera. Um, that's just kind of been now removed. And I, and I feel like I'm, now experiencing an opportunity to be even a better leader 
um, than I was when I was worrying about, I never, I, we built enough business. I wasn't like sweating payroll or anything like that. We, we were, we were solid about that, but there were big market moves and I was worried about the market outpacing us. You know, we were in a nice spot in the eco, the Google ecosystem, but if we, there was threat that bigger partners were going to move into the space and then, you know, over the course of a, f- a number of years, our unique position in the market wouldn't be unique anymore. And then how do I compete with some of the capital that some of these other bigger partners bring? So those are the kinds of things that really stressed me out. And it's that risk that was really weighing on me. Um, and then with a transaction like this, it just allows me to be, they don't take that piece off. Well said, indeed. Someone else's risk tolerance is always different, right? So and you, by pulling yourself out, it allows you to be more, uh, I guess, rational about the risk. I love the, the, the reptilian brain analogy. It's a, it's a great story. I'm so grateful for you sharing it with us. I think we'll have to do a, uh, another version of this at some point when uh, the next business sells, because it sounds like that's a, that's, a, that's a going concern of itself. If people want to reach out, Eric, is there a place that, that they can reach you? Is, is LinkedIn the best? Or do you, yeah. do you want to point people to a website or what's, what's best? Yeah, um, LinkedIn is kind of where everything is uh, flowing through. So I think it's just LinkedIn.com slash Eric Bandy. And uh, Eric I'm is spelled really uniquely A R I C. Yes, sir. Bandy, B A N D Y. And we'll put that in the show notes at built to sell.com. Yep. Eric, thanks for joining us. It was great. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.